Today on Against the Grain, cultural and media workers have a disproportionate impact on how other workers see themselves and the world they live in, whether it's by selling them something or presenting them with dissenting views. And historian Shannon Clark argues, there was a time when a great many cultural workers saw consumption itself as a political act. Such workers in New York City, the hub of publishing, journalism, and much media production in the mid 20th century, showed a remarkable sense of solidarity and creativity in envisioning an alternative to consumer capitalism, from the communist origins of consumer reports to replacing the throwaway culture of cheap goods with affordable modernist design. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Workers in publishing, advertising, broadcasting, and design firms in 20th century New York were both employed by the engines of consumer capitalism and actively fought against their bosses, not simply in their own interests, but as a part of an effort to counter consumerism and capitalism itself. They engaged in pitch battles over unionization, used design to further the goals of the left, and ultimately felt the heavy hand of McCarthyism, driven especially by the advertising industry. These struggles are explored in Shannon Clark's The Making of the American Creative Class, New York's Culture Workers and 20th Century Consumer Capitalism, which is published by Oxford. He teaches history at Montclair State University. When I spoke with Shannon Clark, I asked him how he would characterize the form of capitalism that predominated through much of the 20th century, in which mass consumption, that is, selling products to a growing middle and working class, was a central part of how capitalism operated. So what we begin to see in by the end of the 19th century, but especially during the 20th century is sort of a shift in the form of capital accumulation that we see in the United States. Um, so that capitalist enterprises depend increasingly on the sale of goods directly to consumers, uh, mass-produced goods at volume, um, right, in order to generate revenue and ultimately to generate profit, um, right, and to further uh, accumulate capital, right? And that necessitates a variety of activities to induce consumers to, in fact, purchase the ever-increasing volume of mass-produced um, goods, durable goods like automobiles, but also non-durable goods, clothing, um, you know, food items, toiletries, um, etc., that are being produced by American factories. Um, capitalist enterprises need to differentiate their products from those of their competitors. Um, so we see during this period the evolution of branding um, as a um, product differentiation strategy and the increased reliance on advertising to build consumer demand, not just for goods in general, right, but for the specific branded products that are produced uh, by particular manufacturing firms. Um, this enables, by branding goods, this enables uh, manufacturers to also begin to charge a premium for the goods that they sell, to sell products at a price that is what would be higher than perhaps um, the general equilibrium price for a generic form of that same product and being able to charge that premium on a branded good which essentially functions as a kind of a monopoly right other products come to be seen by consumers as not being perfect substitutes for a particular branded product that's being promoted um, in advertising that premium is essential to the profitability of american consumer capitalism um, right so this necessitates also the increase in expenditure on advertising. Um, and then with that also, the growth of other kinds of cultural activities that are supported by advertising expenditure. So we see, for instance, um, at the end of the 19th century and through the first decades of the 20th century, a significant expansion 
um, in employment working for newspapers, um, which by the late 1920s on average depend on advertising for 70 to 75% um, of their revenues, right? Circulation and subscription and newsstand sales are actually a very small part of the money that makes these newspapers profitable. Um, we also see similar expansion of magazines um, that depend upon advertising revenue. Um, in the 1920s, we have the advent of commercial radio broadcasting in the United States, um, which very quickly adopts the advertising-based business model um, that had already emerged in newspaper and magazine publishing. Um, and then we also see by the 1920s an increased emphasis on the actual appearance and styling of goods themselves. Um, the emergence of industrial design is a new profession within the culture industries and an increased um, use of, of various forms of modernist um, design um, to style products, to essentially make the goods into advertisements for themselves. So the growth of advertising, of newspaper and magazine publishing, eventually broadcasting and design, um, ultimately creates tens of thousands, um, ultimately several hundred thousand jobs nationally um, by the middle of the 20th century. Um, New York City is the focus for my book because it is where most of these publishing firms, advertising agencies, especially those that are national in scope, are located. Um, so it's a place where we see these sort of two trends that I'm examining in the book. On the one hand, the emergence and growth of a salaried you know, white-collar workforce, and on the other, the emergence and, and development of this kind of pervasive culture of consumer capitalism. Um, New York is a place where both of these trends really intersect to a greater degree than elsewhere. And when you talk about these white-collar workers or cultural workers, I mean, you've been listing off the emergence of various different sectors and industries to do with um, newspapers and broadcast media and design. But like actually the workers themselves, or many of them, when you talk about these cultural workers, you're, you're defining that category expansively. Can you explain who you're thinking of when you talk about these cultural workers? Yeah, I'm describing sort of several different sort of occupational strata that are employed by the culture industries, by ad agencies, newspapers, radio networks, etc. Right at the top, we have people who are writers, editors, artists, illustrators, um, you know, photographers, like people who are actually you know creating content. Um, but these firms also depend upon um, substantial numbers, ultimately sort of larger numbers of clerical workers, um, other kinds of white-collar support staff, um, other types of professionals who may not be in directly creative roles. Um, and all of these workers, all of these white-collar workers are essential to actually produce, to actually create um, the content of newspapers, of magazines, of radio networks, um, et cetera. Um, and it's important, I think, to think of all of these workers within the culture industries together um, precisely because in many cases they organize together for better conditions on the job. Um, when we see the advent and expansion of white-collar unionism in the culture industries during the 1930s, um, unions like the Newspaper Guild, for instance, ultimately organize along industrial lines, um, right, including the people who are, you know, writing, you know, articles for the newspaper and editing articles for the newspaper, photographers who are taking the photographs that will accompany those articles, right, but also people who are working, you know, um, as billing clerks in the circulation department, right? And there's a recognition that all of these people's labor is essential for these enterprises to function. And as a result, you know, all of these people will need to work together to, to improve conditions. So much of your book is about the efforts of these cultural workers to not just reshape um, the conditions under which they work, but um, much more 
radical notions around consumption in society. But tell us about the degree to which to be able to do that, to be able to unionize, to be able to organize, that they had to get past certain prejudices that some of these workers might have had, particularly those on the sort of top tiers who might think of themselves as artists in a class of their own. The idea that professionals or people with creative positions like art, people who are, are artists, people who write for a living, that they might see themselves as either you know, superior in status to other kinds of workers, um, or that they might believe that the kind of activities that they're engaged in are just so fundamentally dissimilar from other kinds of work um, that they shouldn't necessarily see themselves as workers or see themselves as benefiting from organizing and collective action. I mean, this is certainly something that we see in the early part of the 20th century. It's still something that we see today. Um, certainly, if you look at efforts to organize and unionize um, workers in higher education, um, you can still see this kind of resistance um, as well. I think, you know, to come back to the early 20th century, the growth of the Newspaper Guild provides an excellent example of how um, white-collar workers, how professionals in particular, grappled with these ideas. When the Newspaper Guild first began to develop, in 1933, it was originally sort of a, a militant professional advocacy organization for journalists. Um, obviously, they knew that conditions had deteriorated rapidly in the newspaper industry following the onset of the Great Depression um, with the collapse in consumer demand. Um, you know, there was really sort of a crisis of consumer capitalism as an economic model. Advertisers curtail their expenditures, which leads to deep layoffs throughout the culture industries, substantial reductions in pay as well. Um, so even though journalists you know, were a fairly individualistic lot, you know, most of them realized by the early 1930s that conditions would only improve if they came together and, and worked together, if they organized um, and tried to make sort of collective demands on publishers to improve conditions. Um, but they weren't really sure about how to do that. Many of them were uncomfortable with the idea of thinking themselves as workers, um, uh, you know, feared that they would maybe lose status if they were to actually formally unionize. Um, but the sort of inadequacies of sort of just a professional advocacy approach, um, even in a militant form, eventually by 1936, um, pushes the newspaper guild to move towards actually becoming a collective bargaining agent. Um, and in 1937, the newspaper guild eventually received a charter from the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO, um, the new labor federation that represented this huge surge of organizing in mass production industries like auto and steel. Uh, during the 1930s and 1940s. So it's a gradual path for them um, to first decide that they need to form a union and then to come to the conclusion that they can't just unionize um, editors and, and journalists and, and people who actually create the content, that they have to organize all of the white collar workers, um, including clerical workers who in most newspaper guild bargaining units during the middle of the 20th century are easily 70% of the membership um, at most newspapers. Um, but they come to see, kind of through trial and error, and um, that they have to form an organization that includes, that pursues collective bargaining, first of all, um, right, that is a union that recognizes their, that they are workers, but that also tries to include all of the workers within these particular firms. Well, this fight for both oneself and one's fellow workers that really flowered in the 1930s and after, certainly people fought for, for their own interests and the interests collectively of their fellow workers. But for many of these cultural workers, they saw consumption and the creation of goods for consumption as highly political. Obviously, there was a range of perspectives, but how would you say that consumption was understood by these left-wing cultural workers in the 1930s and beyond? 
I mean, they have a view of American political economy in which um, consumer capitalism, in particular, you know, the ability of firms to earn a premium on branded goods um, is essential to keeping the entire capitalist system running. Um, so some of the more radical members of the creative class sort of see attacking the culture of consumer capitalism as being um, an important way to try to bring about um, a more social democratic or socialist society in the United States. Um, obviously, they believe that labor organizing is important. Um, they're committed to supporting not only their own organizing efforts among white collar workers in the culture industries, but also to supporting you know, labor organizing throughout you know, mass production, manufacturing as well, in retail and other sectors. Um, but they see sort of delegitimizing some of the aspects of consumer capitalism as also being essential. Um, this certainly motivates the group of radical writers and journalists and technicians and engineers who form Consumers Union. Yes, which we now know as Consumer Reports. Yeah, today we think of Consumer Reports as simply a, a, a magazine and an institution that's you know, provides ratings of products so that people in very sort of individualized ways can sort of rationally maximize their utility. Um, but in its initial incarnation in the 1930s and 1940s in particular, um, it was a much more radical organization. Many of the individuals who helped to establish it in the mid-1930s had ties to the Communist Party of the United States. And while they certainly were interested in helping consumers avoid fraudulent and misleading you know, advertising and, and claims by manufacturers for goods that were, were faulty or low quality, um, they were also interested in sort of more fundamentally critiquing and trying to delegitimate um, consumer capitalism in the United States. Um, so they're very, um, active in trying to promote the use of generic goods of various kinds, um, of trying to institute various forms of grade labeling um, of various products so that consumers would make purchasing decisions um, objectively and not just on whatever sort of impression advertising had created um, regarding the alleged quality of some particular product um, in the consumer. Uh, marketplace. They're very active at promoting um, public goods, right? An expansion of the New Deal to have a greater provisioning of public goods. Um, Consumers Union in its early years is very, very assertive in its promotion of a, a public health care, the creation of a national health system in the United States, for promoting public housing, um, you know, as well as alternatives to consumer capitalism. Um, so again, a much broader um, agenda than what we associate with consumers union um, today. Um, and that broad agenda that they started with sort of narrowed dramatically um, during the early years of the Cold War when consumers union was attacked uh, by anti-communists, was actually officially designated for a few years as a subversive organization by the House Committee on Un-American Activities, um, and had to sort of purge itself of some of its left-wing members and also of some of its more radical critiques of consumer capitalism um, in order to be able to survive that period of the late 1940s and early 1950s um, when it was under very intense attack, as were other aspects of, of the popular front and other sort of activities um, of left-wing culture workers in the United States. I'm speaking with historian Shannon Clark. He's the author of The Making of the American Creative Class, New York's Culture Workers in 20th Century Consumer Capitalism, and that's published by Oxford. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. You mentioned the New Deal, and one of the hallmarks of the New Deal was the government sponsorship of cultural production through entities like the Federal Art Project, the Federal Theater Project, the Federal Writers Project. What was the role 
of grassroots cultural pressure for the making of these programs and to what degree were they able to direct a critical lens on capitalism even in the form that it was taking under the New Deal? Um, the projects themselves emerged directly in response to pressure from unemployed um, or underemployed or precariously employed um, artists, performers, writers, and other creative people who were organizing in response to the catastrophe of the Great Depression. Right? Part of what they're doing is organizing these unions um, you know, within existing enterprises that produce culture. A second activity that they're engaging in is launching these kinds of alternative media projects that critique uh, the culture of consumer capitalism, certainly the formation of, of consumers' union, which we were just discussing, would fall into that category along with the creation, for instance, uh, of PM, which is an advertising-free newspaper in New York City. But the third activity that they pursue is to directly pressure the federal government to create jobs um, for, you know, again, writers, artists, performers, other types of creative people who find themselves unemployed and underemployed. And the federal government's primary response to this came in 1935 with the creation of the Works Progress Administration, one of the leading um, unemployment relief measures enacted um, during the New Deal. And that includes these four cultural projects that you just mentioned, right? A federal artist project, a federal writers project, a federal theater project and a federal um, music project. Um, at their peak levels of employment um, in sort of the fall of 1936, there were maybe between 45 and 50,000 people total employed on those four projects, um, which, you know, probably was close to about 20%. Um, of all the individuals that we might consider as being employed, um, you know, in various types of white collar jobs in the culture industries in the United States. Um, so it's a significant share uh, of the nation's writers, artists, performers who ultimately find work of some type. The work they create is varying to the extent, I mean, if we want to think of it as sort of as works of, of writing, as works of art, um, to the extent to which they're actually critical, the artwork itself of consumer capitalism, there's a considerable amount of variance um, there. But certainly the principle um, that culture workers could be employed by the government, produce culture as a public good, um, that their employment could essentially democratize culture in various ways, that itself, I think, is a challenge to the prevailing mode of consumer capitalism in the United States. Um, even if you know, much of the art that was created did not necessarily have sort of a, a radical kind of didactic political agenda incorporated into it. You mentioned the anti-communist backlash against the cultural uh, industry and culture workers, including the Consumers Union report. Following World War II, the Cold War intensified. Tell us about the extent of the anti-communist backlash and the effect of the 1947 Taft-Hartley Act. Um, perhaps you can remind us what it was. So the Taft-Hartley Act is passed in 1947 um, following midterm elections the previous year that had gone disastrously for the Democrats. The Republicans in 1946 um, regained control of Congress for the first time since 1930. Um, and at the behest of the National Association of Manufacturers and other business interests, they immediately passed legislation um, known after its sponsors as the Taft-Hartley Act um, that amends the original National Labor Relations Act of 1935 in various ways that makes it more difficult for unions to organize new members and to grow. But one particular aspect 
of the Taft-Hartley Act that's sort of relevant to thinking about anti-communism the post-war years was a provision that required all union officials to be able to sign um, non-communist affidavits to essentially swear that they were not members of the Communist Party. In order for their unions to be able to access um, any of the services of the National Labor Relations Board, which is the federal agency created during the New Deal that essentially administers labor law in the United States and that you know, makes it possible for workers in a workplace to democratically form an independent union of their own choosing. Um, so left-led unions whose leaders um, could not, you know, without committing perjury, sign these affidavits found that they suddenly could not appear on the ballot in, in representation elections, but they could also not, they were prohibited from filing unfair labor practice charges with the National Labor Relations Board. Um, this is especially a problem for United Office and Professional Workers of America, um, which includes many of sort of the smaller um, unions in New York's culture industries that did not have their own sort of national union charter like the Newspaper Guild did. Um, and these unions in the United Office of Professional Workers of America um, are devastated by attacks between 1947 and 1951, um, right, as, you know, employers are relentlessly attacking them, um, you know, holding captive audience meetings with employees, you know, attacking the union leadership as communist. Um, and then unions are also being attacked by, you know, Congress, which through investigative bodies like the House Committee on Un-American Activities, or the Senate Internal Security Subcommittee that's created in 1950, um, are also using their subpoena power to bring in labor leaders, progressive activists um, in the culture industries, people who have been very active in the popular front of the 1930s and 1940s, and grilling them about their various associations. Um, writers, artists, performers of various stripes um, who were reluctant to discuss their own activities or in particular to name others um, and who invoked their Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination usually found themselves blacklisted as a result. Um, and then you also have sort of private sector professional anti-communists who are essentially in the blacklisting business for money, um, who compile lists of alleged subversives, um, who sell these lists to advertising agencies, to publishers, to the radio and television networks for them to use in denying employment to individuals who are deemed to be involved in various types of radical activities. Um, those radical activities, of course, could you know, often involve um, support for racial equality, support for gender equality, support for the labor movement, um, international anti-fascist solidarity, um, right? These are all of the types of, of activities that are being attacked as subversive during this period. Um, and the result is to really weaken very much um, this, this movement, this progressive movement amongst uh, white-collar workers in the culture industries that had taken root during the 1930s and the first part of the 1940s. You're listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Today I'm speaking with Shannon Clark. He's Associate Professor of History at Montclair State University and the author of The Making of the American Creative Class, New York's Culture Workers and 20th Century Consumer Capitalism. And you can find a link to that book on our website, againstthegrain.org. Uh, you mentioned McCarthy-era repression of workers in the culture industry, and you mentioned, among others, workers in radio. And I wanted to ask you more broadly about, first, the efforts by those working in broadcast media, um, in radio, in television, to not only organize, but to pose alternatives to the degree that they could, or, or critiques of consumer capitalism in their work, and how their fortunes ebbed during 
the middle and later part of the 20th century. Radio is an interesting case. I mean, the 1930s and 1940s are, in many ways, the golden era of radio. Um, we think of radio in the 1930s, we often think of the ways in which Franklin Delano Roosevelt, through his fireside chats, made very effective use of radio uh, to communicate the objectives of the New Deal programs very clearly uh, to the American public. Um, FDR you know, used radio to a large extent as a way of kind of circumventing um, the print media, which was in fact fairly hostile uh, to FDR and to the New Deal. At the same time, radio was a less accessible format for progressives and radicals in the culture industries in the 1930s and 1940s than print media like newspapers and magazines were. And I think there's two main reasons for it. Part of the problem is the role of the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, um, which sort of takes more or less its modern form during the New Deal, um, but is responsible, of course, for licensing stations. Um, you know, if a group of um, progressives or political radicals want to start a newspaper, want to start a magazine, they just have to scrape together the startup funds um, to do it, right? To start your own radio station, of course, um, you know, you have to raise funds to purchase a transmitter and studio equipment and et cetera. But it's also necessary, of course, to actually have a license. Um, to have a segment of the, broad, of the terrestrial broadcast spectrum allocated to you by the FCC. And during the 1930s and 1940s, the FCC um, very deliberately prioritized the needs of commercial broadcasters. If anything, um, many of the early educational and labor-based and other kinds of community-based broadcasting initiatives that be, that sort of spring up around the country in the 1920s or early 1930s. In many cases, um, those early initiatives actually lose their right to broadcast um, because of the FCC. The other issue is the role of the owners of, of major stations themselves um, through their trade association, the National Association of Broadcasters, during the 1930s and in the first part of the 1940s, um, are very, very averse um, to selling um, any of their airtime to labor unions um, or to other kinds of progressive groups, um, including those groups that are, that are critical of consumer capitalism, to use their airwaves. Um, right. The unions ultimately are able, you know, during the 1940s to get the FCC um, more on their side, right? So you see some initiatives, I mentioned in the book, for instance, that the Newspaper Guild of New York during the Second World War had a weekly radio show called The News and What to Do About It, where they would um, sort of link a segment that provided investigative reporting on some kind of a social issue or problem in New York City, and then had the second part of the program that tried to mobilize listeners in various ways to address the problem, right? To essentially try to use the radio program as a catalyst for participatory democracy in World War II era New York. Um, a group of these unionists, along with progressives in the culture industries tried to get their own FM station in New York City when the FCC allocated the very first FM frequencies in the mid-1940s by forming a group called the, called the People's Radio Foundation. Um, poet Langston Hughes, comedian Charlie Chaplin were on the board of directors, along with many individuals from um, left-led labor unions in New York City. Uh, but anti-communist attacks on the People's Radio Foundation ultimately prevented them from getting an FM license. Um, they did not have the success, for instance, that the founders of Pacifica Radio did um, you know, in 1950 when they were able to establish KPFA. Indeed. And what about the advertising industry? I mean, by 
definition, advertising is about selling you something, perhaps something that you didn't need in the first place. And yet there were radicals involved in the advertising industry for decades. How did they think and rethink advertising and their work uh, in a more radical context? Yeah, there always are radicals um, in the advertising industry, although in some cases they end up having to leave advertising to pursue uh, their political objectives. The advertising industry is amongst the various culture industries that I examine in the book, um, the one that where there is the strongest opposition to union organizing. Um, and that's true both within the agencies themselves. Um, the United Office and Professional Workers of America does have an advertising guild within it, a union that's trying to organize all kinds of white collar workers in advertising agencies in New York City. Um, but they face intense resistance. It's ultimately the only one really um, of these various white collar unions that really struggles to ever establish itself and to really um, you know, enter into sort of a long-term stable kind of collective bargaining relationship with employers, um, right? And the advertising agencies are also hostile to the organization of the talent guilds that they have to deal with as the producers of radio and television shows um, during the middle of the 20th century. Unlike today, um, when most programming for television or streaming online is produced by independent production companies. In the 1930s and 1940s, major advertising agencies like J. Walter Thompson or BBDO actually produced radio and then subsequently television shows for their clients, for General Motors, for Procter & Gamble, you know, et cetera, which meant that they were actually hiring talent themselves, hiring performers, hiring the people who wrote the scripts, hiring directors. Um, and they're always very averse to recognizing those talent guilds, you know, as well, um, to establishing sort of anything that can look like a collective bargaining relationship or sort of formal contractual relations. Um, with these performers. And of course, the advertising agencies are at the forefront of blacklisting um, because they control the purse strings and because their clients are the ones who are most concerned about their reputation and being afraid that their product is somehow gonna be associated with subversive actors or subversive writers. You know, they're the ones who are really responsible for denying people employment, for firing people during the early 1950s when blacklisting, you know, it is, is at its worst. Um, in many ways, the ad agencies are really are a key part of the ideological resistance to the popular front and the New Deal more broadly um, on the part of conservatives and the business community in the United States. Um, in the absence of the kind of network of right-wing think tanks, like the Heritage Foundation, for instance, um, that are created in the 1970s and 80s and that still dominate um, sort of right-wing thinking today. Um, the ad agencies actually in the 1930s and 1940s kind of fill that role. Um, they're very important ideologically um, and economically to the right-wing counteroffensive against the popular front and against the New Deal um, during this period. In later periods, like the 1960s, we see a creative revolution in advertising. Um, but that reflects sort of a different sensibility, um, not so much the idea that we're going to change consumer capitalism, but that rather sort of, you know, relations of the market are actually being transcended um, in an economy in which there's seemingly unprecedented prosperity, um, in an economy that is, you know, to use the term um, coined by sociologist Daniel Bell is becoming a post-industrial society, um, that there'll be sort of new opportunities for creative autonomy, even within the culture industries, 
Um, but ultimately, even the proponents of this kind of a creative revolution within consumer capitalism find that they're still frustrated, um, that the constraints on their autonomy, even if they have very lucrative jobs, don't necessarily go away. Shannon Clark is my guest. He's a historian and the author of The Making of the American Creative Class, New York's Culture Workers and 20th Century Consumer Capitalism. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So, of course, the 1970s was a period of labor turmoil, often forgotten, um, and marked a very significant shift to uh, a political economic shift in how capitalism was structured, and certainly also a cultural shift as well. And what could be called Fordism, um, the period of capitalist growth based on increased wages and high consumption of goods by the working class, came to an end and was replaced by neoliberalism in which wealth has been redistributed from the working and middle classes to the very wealthy. Can you tell us about this shift, how it was seen by the culture workers of that time, how it was experienced, I guess I should say, what kind of shift we saw with the cultural workers in the 1970s, because that shift has lasting effects on the place of culture work and cultural workers in the United States. Sure. Fordist consumer capitalism from the early 20th century up through the 1970s had been predicated primarily on the creation and sort of instantiation and deepening of a relatively unified mass market, right? The idea was to basically maximize sort of effective consumer demand in the economy by trying to open up um, the ability to consume to a larger share of the American population. Um, and certainly the New Deal furthers this, um, you know, it the New Deal and, and changes in the economy and, and the tax structure in particular that occurred in the Second World War um, result in sort of a relative lessening of economic inequality in the United States. Um, certainly the New Deal also reinscribed other forms of inequality, um, right? So, you know, opportunities to have a good, you know, a high-paying union manufacturing job um, that would allow somebody to enjoy in the 1950s or 1960s, say, um, you know, the kind of standard of living that was promoted in advertising and in other aspects of America's culture of consumer capitalism tended to be the province of white males, right? Women, members of, of minority communities, right, are excluded in many ways. Um, from this sort of large and expanding sort of core of workers whose wages enable them to partake in the fruits of American consumer capitalism. Um, but that trend shifts in the 1970s, where we begin to see um, a move towards an increasingly unequal distribution of income and wealth in the United States. And with that, there's essentially a breakup of this more unified mass market that had existed since the early 20th century. Um, and so the culture industries are reoriented. Certain types of cultural production um, are now focused towards this sort of smaller um, segment of consumers, typically affluent professionals, um, whose incomes are still rising after the 1970s for the remainder of the 20th century. Um, and then sort of this more kind of obviously and conspicuously sort of down market segment, um, you know, for the majority of American workers who've seen their real earnings stagnate or decline over the last 40 to 45 years in this country, um, right? Certain types of iconic media um, products that it defined in many ways the post-World War II era of mass consumerism and prosperity, even though it's unevenly enjoyed, um, go into a real crisis. Um, a prime example that I point to in the book is the original Life magazine, um, which is the most successful um, 
in terms of its earnings and in terms of its circulation, general interest periodical of the 1950s and 1960s. Um, but that goes out of business in 1972 when Time Incorporated, the publisher realizes they're actually losing money on the publication and decide to suspend it. Um, right? In large part, um, that dissolution reflects the beginning of the breakup of this kind of uniform, consistent mass market that magazines like Life were geared to, um, right? We see in, 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 instead, right, in the 1970s, Time Incorporated launching sort of new magazine titles, but that are targeted more towards sort of niche audiences. Um, so the changes in the American political economy, the shift away from um, modestly decreasing inequality to increasing inequality um, directly affects sort of the demographics of various consumer segments. And that in turn affects um, the profitability and viability or lack thereof of different types of media enterprises. And how has this restructuring of both American capitalism the idea of a single unified mass market, and then the kind of attendant with neoliberalism shift in a real overt, aggressive class war from above on workers. How has that changed the place of the media workers? I mean, you've described how ownership has changed and management has changed, but what of those media workers themselves, how has their work become different from how it might have been 50 years ago? One is an increased um, casualization of work, um, a greater reliance on freelancing, I mean, which always existed, um, but you see in many of these fields a much higher proportion of individuals who are freelancing. Um, individuals who are essentially gig workers um, who 40 or 50 years ago, whether they'd been produce, helping to produce a TV show um, or working for a magazine or a newspaper, would have been on staff, right? Would have had a permanent employment relationship um, with a media firm of some type, whether that was a publisher or a broadcaster or an ad agency or a design firm. Um, and with that sort of an attendant, you know, regular salary, regular benefits. Um, right, so this general trend towards casualization, um, towards precarity um, that we see throughout the economy, I mean, epitomized by the spread of firms like Uber, for instance, um, is definitely a trend that we see affecting um, various types of culture work, um, especially over the last 20 years or so, um, since the turn of the millennia, when we see um, this advertising business model, um, you know, that had supported the growth of the culture industries in the early 20th century and throughout the 20th century, um, begin to collapse, um, where, you know, newspaper, print media, legacy media in particular, but also even digital media find um, that they, you know, cannot, you know, depend on advertising revenues the way that their the predecessor firms had been able to throughout the 20th century. You've discussed the you know really thoroughgoing changes that have happened to how people work uh, in the culture industry and reflective of the larger shift toward the gig economy and contractors working freelance and so on. But I wonder how you see also the change in self-perception and political purpose of cultural workers today compared to, say, cultural workers in New York through the early and mid and into later 20th century. As we are seeing more precarity, has there been any shift away from the kind of conservatism that I think one would point to that emerged following the 1970s as the kind of retreat of the social movements of the 60s waned? Um, I definitely think that we've seen a resurgence of class consciousness 
amongst culture workers in recent years, um, where conditions, I think, for so many writers and artists and other creative professionals have deteriorated to the point that the, the fiction of being a, a superior professional with elevated status just doesn't match up to uh, the material realities of, of paychecks that are simply inadequate um, to live in increasingly expensive metropolitan areas. Um, and so we've seen a huge, and, and, and to, from my perspective, very welcome and very positive resurgence of union organizing with the News Guild, with the Writers Guild of America, um, and with other unions um, in New York's culture industries and nationally over the last few years. Um, around the country, with the News Guild in particular, I mean, so many newsrooms um, that are under, of course, so much pressure with dwindling employment and falling salaries um, are organizing because journalists realize that union organization is going to be part of how we save independent local news in this country, um, the kind of independent local journalism that our democracy um, so vitally needs, especially at this moment of um, political crisis um, that we're in now, right, intersecting with our economic and, and public health crises, obviously. Shannon Clark, thank you so very much for your time today. Thank you so much. It's been really a pleasure to be on Against the Grain. Shannon Clark teaches history at Montclair State University. He's the author of The Making of the American Creative Class, New York's Culture Workers and 20th Century Consumer Capitalism. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks for listening, and please tune in again next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. Please visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio and a way to sign up for our podcast. And you can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio or follow us on Twitter at Radio Against.